0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.
1: A candidate for superior court judge in San Diego has posted several racist and sexist photos and jokes. Plus, we've got the story of a former Navy SEAL who suffered a psychotic break after receiving an experimental treatment from a UCSD physician. And we look at Proposition 13, a statewide school bond measure tagged with an unfortunate name. I'm Jade Hindman, and the KPBS Roundtable starts now.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.
1: Welcome to our discussion of the week's top stories. I'm Jade Hindman. Joining me at the KPBS Roundtable today are Amita Sharma with KPBS News, Joe Hong also with KPBS News, and Jill Castellano with i-News Source. Welcome to you guys. Thank you. Thanks. It's good to be here. Okay, so let's begin today with Sean McMillan. He's a candidate for San Diego Superior Court judge, but now it's his Facebook posts that are being judged for being anti-immigrant, racist, and sexist. The exposure has led some to question whether McMillan is fit to adjudicate the law fairly while being so openly biased. Now, Amitha, you've been covering this story. What kind of post did you find uh, from this Superior Court judge candidate? Well,
2: Jade, I'll give you uh, a bit of a sample of them. There's one uh, post that he shared. It says, I was asked, are you happy with the racist president? I said, absolutely not. We replaced him with Donald Trump. There's another post he shared from the Minutemen Minutemen Militia. uh, And it says, when nobody knew who you were until you got on your knees. And it has three pictures. One of Monica Lewinsky, former NFL football player uh, Colin Kaepernick, and U.S. Senator Kamala Harris. There's another one that he shared uh, that says stop all welfare to illegal aliens and they'll deport themselves. Hmm.
1: Now who is Sean McMillan? Tell me a bit about so, that. So
2: Sean McMillan describes himself as a plaintiff's civil rights lawyer. He represents kids who have been molested, who have been severely physically abused, severely emotionally abused, and he sues counties across California over these cases and he wins. I suppose to a lawyer who knows him knows him well and says that he takes on some of the toughest cases the ones that other lawyers simply don't want sean mcmillan says that he is running to be judge uh, because he wants to restore faith in the judicial system but he also sees this as a natural career progression for him and he said he was asked by a friend to run a fellow attorney who felt like sean mcmillan's opponent in this race, a woman by the name of Michelle Allegio. She's a deputy district attorney. He felt like, or this friend of his, a woman, felt like Michelle Allegio was being set up by the San Diego legal establishment to win this race. Hmm.
1: And, you know, you confronted McMillan about these posts. What did he have to say?
2: Well, uh, I asked him if these were his posts. He didn't sugarcoat them. He owned them outright, and he's like, yeah, I did it. Uh, I'm not gonna lie about it, they're out there. I asked him why he posted these, uh, which a lot of people would see as incendiary, as insensitive, he himself said that they were insensitive. Um, And he said he did it to spark a conversation. Um, I asked him if the post reflected his views, And he said some do, some don't. I walked him through a couple of them. The one of Monica Lewinsky, Colin Kaepernick, and uh, Kamala Harris, the insinuation is that they rose to their positions, gained their celebrity, because of the relationships that they had. And um, the one, he he referenced Kamala Harris and said, well, everybody knows about her relationship with Willie Brown. There was a lot of stuff out there. Uh, Willie Brown is a California Democratic political broker, uh, former mayor of San Francisco. She had a romantic relationship with Willie Brown, uh, Kamala Harris did at one time. I said, you do understand that this this does come across as sexist. He said, yeah, I get it. Um, I asked him about the one basically saying that President Obama was a racist. Um, He said, those are my views. I, I think he was a very divisive figure. I think post his tenure, the country really needs to heal. I then asked him if he thought that President Trump's comments back in 2017. Uh, saying there were very fine people on both sides in reference to a white supremacist rally uh, in Virginia and a counter rally um, were healing. He said he was unaware of those comments. I asked him whether he thought that President Trump's comments back in 2018, uh, saying he wanted to ban uh, immigration from mostly African countries, referring to those countries as shithole countries, whether those comments were healing. He said he was wasn't aware of those comments that he is very focused on his work and lives in what he called a very small pond,
1: very small. pond. That's interesting. Uh, So tell me why this these posts would be such an issue for someone running for Superior Court judge.
2: Well, if you talk to people who study the legal system, they'll say that the best judges, the most ideal judges, are the ones who are respectful, who don't just have a strong uh, legal knowledge base, but but they are patient and they are open-minded and again, above all, respectful. Uh, and while they say, look, uh, we understand that there's been a tremendous backlash against political correctness in our society, at the end of the day, uh, these posts uh, represent disrespect uh, for people and for certain groups.
1: And you spoke with the NAACP and the San Diego County Bar Association about Macmillan. What did they have to say?
2: Well, they were unaware. Uh, not the San Diego County Bar Association. Uh, I spoke with the NAACP. The the group was unaware of these Post. They were repulsed by them. Uh, one gentleman who heads their political uh, segment of the depart- or of the of the group said that he did, however, appreciate McMillan's candor uh, about the posts that he owned them. Uh, he liked that, um, but he he did find them abhorrent. He said they were disgusting. The San Diego County Bar Association actually evaluates judicial candidates in order to help inform the public, who generally just they don't pay attention to judicial races. And they concluded that Sean McMillan is lacking qualifications to be judge. And what that means, according to them, is that he uh, doesn't have the ability, doesn't have the experience, doesn't have the temperament, doesn't have the competence, doesn't have the integrity to be judge. I believe uh, the bar found his opponent, opponent Michelle Allegio, as being exceptionally qualified for the position. I asked Sean McMillan about the bar's conclusions, and he said, you know, basically it is what it is. He said it's rubbish. Uh, um, he felt like he's extremely qualified. He he called those evaluations, that entire process, a beauty pageant and one that he refused to participate in.
1: Mm. How many uh, Superior Court seats are being contested?
2: There are four seats
1: and there are 11 candidates. All right, Amita, thank you. I know this is something you're going to continue to follow. I will. All right. Uh, I new source reporters Brad Rossino and Jill Castellano spent six months investigating the story of a former Navy SEAL, John Sermont. Sermont was treated for post-traumatic stress disorder by Dr. Kevin Murphy, an oncologist at UC San Diego School of Medicine. Sermont was treated with a modified version of a relatively new technology called transcranial magnetic stimulation. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved TMS machines for some ailments, but not for PTSD. Jill, start first uh, with uh, what his condition was like when he came back from deployment.
3: Yeah, so John Cermont, a Navy SEAL, he's considered a highly trained military weapon. He was in really dangerous parts of the world. He was deployed to uh, parts of the Middle East and Asia multiple times, and when he returned, he had something that's very common, hundreds of thousands of veterans do, post-traumatic stress disorder. It was untreated, he had trouble sleeping, he was really irritable, and it was so bad that he felt like he needed to know where there was an exit in every single room that he was in. Hmm. It was a pretty, pretty bad situation. And then there was an incident. Yes, there was a. a- truck accident he got into. In March 2013, He it was a typical day for him. Uh, he had dropped his kids off, and he had gone swimming at the local pool. He got back into his car in Chula Vista, and his car was hit by an 18-wheeler carrying lumber, and he was sent through the passenger side window. It was a really horrific accident. He was sent to the hospital, had to get emergency surgery, and when he came out, not only was he physically broken, but his traumatic stress was much worse and he had a traumatic brain injury as well. He could barely speak. He was in just an absolutely terrible condition. So how did Sermont find Dr. Murphy? So he found Dr. Murphy through something called the Navy Seal Foundation, which is a nonprofit that helps people like Sermont Navy Seals and their family members and looks out for them. Um, Someone at the center said, hey, you might want to consider this new and upcoming treatment. It's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And the shorthand for that is TMS um, and you might want to look for a place that offers that. So he did, and he went to this place in Newport Beach called the Newport Brain Research Laboratory, which is where he met Dr. Murphy, who became his supervising physician as he was treated with this technology. Seems like such a small area of study. How, I mean, tell me about uh, Dr. Murphy and how he got involved with TMS. Yeah, it's pretty unusual, right? Because he's an oncologist, so how did he even enter this world at all? Um, He also has a military background. He uh, was in the Navy as well um, in the Gulf War, and he came and became a vice chairman at UC San Diego, an oncologist working on children and pediatric cancer care, which is a very tough field to be in. Um, But one of the other things that was really tough in his life was that he was also Um, He had a kid at home who had really severe violent autism um, to the point where the kid would run around and was literally destroying his home. And it was so hard on him and his wife and his whole family that he In interviews, Dr. Murphy told us he was desperate and he needed to do something. So he ended up taking his son to the Newport Brain Research Lab, getting treated with this uh, experimental transcranial magnetic stimulation and his son improved so much, Murphy says, that he became this convert and just wanted to get involved. Interesting. So does the FDA actually regulate the use of TMS on patients? Sort of, (laughs) it's kind of complicated. The FDA is kind of an interesting regulatory landscape. Technically what they do is they regulate the machines that uh, administer this treatment. So there are machines that have these magnetic coils that are placed on the scalp and then they uh, send these these electromagnetic pulses into the brain and it's supposed to change the way that your brain fires and these machines have been approved so far by the fda to treat three conditions depression obsessive compulsive disorder and migraines Um, so they haven't been approved to treat other conditions but the way the fda operates once these machines have been approved for some things doctors are totally in the if they want to, able to go out and treat other things using those machines. This is called off-label use, it's very common. So this is kind of where Dr. Murphy fits in, is that he offers his own version of TMS where he kind of adjusts the settings on the machines and he um, offers them to all sorts of patients suffering from all sorts of things, autism, cerebral palsy, Alzheimer's disease. So I
1: mean, was Dr. Murphy conducting scientific research or was it clinical trials with his version of, of this TMS?
3: It's pretty complicated because he he's made it complicated. So he goes around and says that he does research on Uh, his version of this treatment to see whether his version of TMS works better than the way that standard TMS that's approved by the FDA works but the truth is that he hasn't in interviews with us he admitted that the statements that he's made publicly um, in lawsuits uh, on on his own website in interviews are not correct he has not conducted any research and the reason why that matters is because he goes around a lot and says that what he offers is better than what you know, what we've studied um, and what we know works for people with things like depression, but he has no evidence to support that in terms of clinical studies. Mm, that could be con- concerning. I mean, what's the treatment like and, and how did Sermont respond to it? This treatment lasts usually uh, four to six or six to eight weeks. You'll go in once a day, five days a week, and like I said, you put this kind of equipment on your head, send these pulses through your brain, and it's supposed to change the way that your brain fires. So that way those learned patterns that might be responsible for something like depression um, are eventually uh, you know, changed, so that way you don't suffer from those symptoms anymore. When Sermont first started getting treat- treated mid-2015, he said it helped him a lot, that his PTSD essentially went away, which was a real, you know, real improvement in his life and that he could speak clearly and think clearly. But he continued to get treated over two years. He got treated actually more than 200 times total, which is very uncommon considering these treatments only last weeks. Um, But he did, and over the course of that time, he had ups and downs um, until eventually around January 2017, he started showing symptoms of mania.
1: Hmm,
3: I mean, is this unapproved use of this device, Is, is this illegal? No, it's not illegal. Dr. Murphy is allowed to do this if he wants to do it. Um, There are, you know, he still is a physician. He's supposed to act in the best interests of his patients, but this is totally okay. So now I'm curious to know what, what eventually happened with uh, Sturmont, you said he, he had, went into mania, I mean what yeah. happened? So he started experiencing s- symptoms of mania like having a really elevated mood, singing at inappropriate times. Normally when things like this happen, we were told by the uh, president of the America's Clinical TMS Society, that is a possible risk, mania can happen when you get this kind of treatment. Um, they usually cut back on treatment or stop it to to help the patients. Uh, but in this case, Dr. Murphy continued to treat Sermont day after day, week after week, until eventually around the summer of 2017, he had a psychotic episode. Um, he ended up on the streets of Los Angeles. We documented this very uh, in a lot of detail in our story, that he was breaking into homes. Um, he thought he was on a secret government mission. There were news reports at the time because there were so much concern that someone who's uh, uh, trained Government weapon is running around the streets somewhere, thinking that he, uh, you know, is on a mission. That that could be potentially dangerous. Um, he lost contact with friends and family. Eventually, uh, after a few weeks, he was arrested at gunpoint in Los Angeles, put in L.A. County Jail, um, and you know has since then been dealing with a lot of court cases.
2: Why did Doctor mm-hmm. Murphy continue the treatment um, after Sumant started uh, experiencing mania?
3: Yeah. We asked Murphy a few times, and he said "I something like, I'm here to treat these patients. These people are sick. I don't stop treating them. Um, and he also said things like, I can't be responsible for what people like Sermont do outside of my facility.
2: Did he concede that there might be a correlation between
3: the mania and this treatment? Not exactly. He said it's it's technically possible that his treatment could have caused this. Psychotic break, but he doesn't think that it did. He thinks that it's more likely for someone to be hit by lightning than it is for his treatment to have caused a psychotic episode, um, and he really takes offense to the idea that his treatment is unsafe.
2: So it was perfectly legal for him to do this. Mm-hmm. What uh, what what are the consequences of what's happened to
3: Mont? In terms of Dr. Murphy, well. That's a good question. It's, it's not totally clear. Because he wasn't performing research, You know, there are no obligations necessarily for him to report this to a, a federal agency. Um, there is an ongoing dispute, though. Sermont has filed a California Medical Board complaint against Dr. Murphy that is ongoing. Um, the two of them in our interviews, they didn't talk to each other, but when they spoke with us, they exchanged some, some harsh words about one another and um, the claims that they've made are um, you know, pretty severe. Right, so where are Murphy and Sermont now? Where are we at with this? Well, Sermont finally, we were there in the end of last year when uh, Sermont finally got rid of his last charge from that psychotic episode. Um, he it was dismissed, so he's finally recovering and getting his life back. And And he still calls Dr. Murphy a hero, someone who helped him and still loves him in a way. Um, As for Dr. Murphy, uh, we did kind of a separate investigation as well with this where we looked at UC San Diego, his time there, a $10 million donation that he was using to study this treatment and now an ongoing investigation by the UC president's office in Oakland into whether he misused that $10 million to benefit his personal financial situation and businesses. So he's still got a lot ahead. Wow, Jill, very eye-opening work there. You. Uh, you know, I just want
1: to tell our audience that this story takes many fascinating twists and turns, and we just don't have time to cover it all here. But the entire saga is available on iNewsSource.org. iNewsSource is a partner of KPBS News.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: Switching gears a little bit here. uh, Proposition 13 on the March primary ballot bears little or no resemblance to the notorious Prop 13 of 1978. That one completely changed the property tax structure in California. But many voters believe that the 2020 Proposition 13 will do away with the 1978 Proposition 13. Confused? Well, KPBS education reporter Joe Hong is here to straighten us all out. Joe, tell us uh, exactly what is Proposition 13? I, I mean, how much money will it raise and, and how much of that will come to San Diego?
4: Yeah, it's a really uh, unfortunate like numbering system, but they, the two Prop 13s really cannot be more different. So Prop 13 on uh, this March's ballot is a $15 billion statewide bond measure that local school districts can apply to um, to receive additional funding to fix uh, facilities. And so it's a $15 billion bond, nine of that 9 billion of that will go to uh preschools to 12th grade so um public schools and then 6 billion will go to colleges and universities
1: okay and how how will it work uh will the taxpayers have to foot the bill on this at all
4: yes so uh if your local school district does get some of this funding your property taxes will go up and and property taxes are the way that uh, local school districts will pay for this. But the one the one thing that makes uh, this bond unique is that it prioritizes uh, the neediest school districts. So school districts with more low-income students, school districts that have the mo- most severe safety and, and health, uh, health needs will get priority in uh, getting the state money.
1: So is there any guarantee that the funds raised will actually be used?
4: Yeah, so there's a, a, a couple measures in place within within um, sort of the ballot language of Prop 13. Uh, the state will conduct regular audits of local school districts that do get state funding just to make sure that they are uh, using the money for what they said they would use for.
3: Is there any uh, understanding of how this proposition that's so different from the prior proposition 13 ended up with the same number i mean it seems pretty yeah. confusing yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: so I, I i had the same question so i asked the, i talked to someone from the secretary of state's office and they said you know every 10 years we just restart the numbering and hmm. uh, here we are. Yeah.
2: Huh. Is it possible <laughs> for them to just banish a particular number and just <laughs> right. never try to do it so out that she, again? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, have that issue. <laughs> that might be a
4: smart <laughs> thing to do, but I'm not sure.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well,
1: hey, you know, thirteen it is. So yeah. let's take a look at a uh, school board races for San Diego Unified mm-hmm. uh, school board races. You know, they're usually not the highest uh, profile races, um, but the Unified Board of Trustees says the stakes are really high in the March primary. Um, three seats are up this year on the five-member board. So tell us first, you know, Joe, why are the stakes so high for this March primary
4: so uh, San Diego unified is an in, is an interesting district It's the second largest in the state and um, lately in the past year it's gotten a lot of national recognition it was the subject of two big studies at Stanford and UCLA that sort of applauded the district for making progress in test scores graduation rates college readiness rates mm-hmm. um, but if you look closely at the data and if you separate by schools, you see some achievement gaps growing between um, schools like Lincoln High School and schools like uh, Scripps Ranch High. And uh, if you're running for board, uh, if you're running for San Diego Unified School Board, you kind of have to deal with both of these things, right? Um, And then secondly, there's a huge fiscal uh, problem in in school districts statewide, and that's uh, declining enrollment, Mm -hmm growing special ed uh, costs and, um, and teacher pensions that keep going up every year. So, and, and lastly, you know, this is the first question I ask all the candidates, you know, why should people care about school board elections? And you know, they, they all said the same thing. They said because it's a, it's a long-term investment because these students will become you know, the future residents of San Diego. All
1: right. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's really going to be up to the elected board members to really fix these problems or at mm. least address the concerns. So let's first start with a familiar name, incumbent Richard Barrera. Uh, tell me a bit about him.
4: Yeah, so he's uh Run, he's running unopposed, and he's run unopposed since 2008. He's uh, he has strong union backing. He represents uh, subdistrict D, which uh, covers Logan Heights and City Heights that area. Um, and yeah, he just has a lot of name recognition. He's out in the community and has strong support overall.
1: All right, three candidates competing for subdistrict A. Quickly, uh, they'll be it'll be vacated by John Lee Evans. What's that district like?
4: Yeah, so uh, it's one of the more higher income subdistricts. It's just east of uh, La Jolla. It covers neighborhoods like Miramonte and Claremont. Um, you have three candidates running. You have uh, Sabrina Bazo, Crystal Troll, and Steph Gross. Both. Uh, are all three of them are parents? They're very involved in uh, their children's schools. They've all served on on PTAs and, and parent groups and things like that.
1: All right. And incumbent Sharon Whitehurst Payne is being opposed in Subdistrict E. She's been in office one term. What's been her focus uh, while holding that seat?
4: So, if you talk to uh, Sharon about what she's most proud of, it's uh, it's special education, and um, she's uh, really focused on doing a better job of meeting individual students' needs. So that, that might mean you know certain students might not actually qualify for special education, but, um, and so you have to make sure they're getting the appropriate services, but at the same time, you have to make sure that those who need special education services are, are getting them. And uh, earlier in, in 2019, she actually was the only board member to vote against uh, renewing the superintendent's contract because she was very critical of the lack of progress at Lincoln High School in her subdistrict.
1: All right, let's take a listen to what Whitehurst Payne had to say here. Children come to our schools in, in District E's community not with the same set of resources that children in, uh, say, District C, the coastal areas. We're going in, we, we have coaching for individual teachers, for individual students. And quickly, she's being opposed by LaWanna Richmond. Um, what did she? What, what's her deal?
4: So her focus is very much on um, on transparency and focusing okay. on this achievement gap uh, between uh, schools in her subdistrict and the rest of the district.
1: All right, Joe. Thank you very much. These races are something we'll continue to watch. We appreciate it. You know that wraps up another week of stories at the KPBS Roundtable. Thank you to all of our guests: Amitha Sharma of KPBS News, Joe Hong, also of KPBS News, and Jill Castellano of iNewSource. A reminder: all of the stories we discussed today are available on our website, KPBS.org. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for joining us today on the Roundtable.